Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, imagine your grandmother was born in the U.S., died in the U.S., never left the U.S., and somehow she wasn't a citizen. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll talk to a researcher in Minnesota who discovered this situation and tell you what he did to fix it posthumously. Plus, we're going to talk about new changes happening with Ancestry Health Corps with Dr. Sarah South. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Busy show coming up today. We're going to be talking to Daniel Swalm out of Minnesota. You know, his grandmother never left the country. She was born here. She died here. And yet she lost her citizenship. Why? Because she got married. We'll tell you the whole story about how that happened to her and how he posthumously got her citizenship back. It's a great story coming up here in about 10 minutes. And then later in the show, I'll talk to Dr. Sarah South. She's with Ancestry Health. Yeah, it's a new division at Ancestry, and that's because they've got some new protocols that really enhance your ability to use DNA to assess your risks to your health. So you're going to want to hear more about that coming up. And, of course, at the back end of the show, we'll answer a couple of your questions with Ask Us Anything with David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. He happens to be on the line with us right now from his hometown of Stoughton, Massachusetts. Hi, Dave. How are you? Oh, we're sweating here in Massachusetts. The, uh, the summer is really beating down on us, so it's nice to be inside the air conditioning of my home. <laughs> well, we've got some big news going on this week. Oh, $4.7 billion worth of news. Blackstone announced that this company was going to buy 75% of Ancestry.com. Yeah, and uh, hopefully what that would mean to all of us genies is expansion of more programs to get more records online, maybe expansion Mm -hmm. of some DNA products. Who knows? Also, MyHeritage has some news as well, and this is good for everybody because we're all kind of stuck at home. MyHeritage is now making their colorizing app and their enhancing app for photographs available through September 10th for free. So if you're a non-subscriber to MyHeritage, you can use that tool and enjoy the results. It's a lot of fun. And I think all of us are just kind of amazed by what those things can do. Well, you know, a lot of people have ancestors who were part of the Irish potato famine in the 1840s. And this is something with genealogists, you know, they're trying to make that connection back and you can get Irish citizenship from Ireland if you can trace back to a certain generation in your family. So it's some really good stuff. But in Australia, there were a lot of girls that were sent there at the time of the famine from workhouses, including the Montbello Workhouse, which has a crowdsourcing project now to track down all the girls that were sent to Australia away from a workhouse in Galway Island. Wow. This is an interesting thing because some of these girls may have ended up in America and they could be your ancestors, folks. So do you have a connection that your great, great, great grandmother or great, great grandmother may have been a workhouse girl sent to Australia? And then did your family come from Australia to America? You want to check out the story on ExtremeGenes.com for more details and get involved. There's actually going to be a list in the article of all the girls in their ages. So 
Who knows? Maybe it's your great-grandma. That's a great story. Well, you know, I I think genealogy is great for crowdsourcing, and social media has definitely helped that out. But another thing that social media has helped, of course, was so many people giving their DNA to places like JetMatch and having their DNA online has helped companies like DNA Doe Project identify individuals. In fact, it wasn't long ago that Jane Doe number 196 was identified by the Michigan State Police in a cold case for 30 years. So in Ada Township, Michigan, uh, 23 years ago, there were remains of a body found on the side of the road. They have not figured out who she is in all these years, but we're hoping now with DNA Doe Project's work that they'll be able to pinpoint who this victim was. Now, many of you may have Scottish roots since we've given time for Irish roots. Back in 1320, there was a declaration of Aberoth. It was a name given to a letter dated on the 6th of April, 1320, from Scottish barons addressed to Pope John the 20th. It was basically King Robert I's response to his excommunication for disobeying the Pope's demand in 1317 for a truce during the First War of Scottish Independence. They're using Y-DNA fish, and we've talked about this once, uh, maybe a year or two ago, about them trying to find the descendants. Guess what? They found some of them using Y-DNA from 700 years later. It's amazing. That's incredible. Y-DNA, of course, goes from the father to the son to the son to the son and on down, so it doesn't change very much, and it can go way, way back. So they're confirming the identities of the descendants of the people who signed this document in the 1300s. That's crazy. It is, and genealogy researchers from the University of Strathclyde in Scotland are the ones that have actually tracked down the descendants based on the DNA and research. My hat's off to them for doing research that far back and connecting people currently living that may have not even realized it. Oh, and by the way, Dave, speaking of DNA, Keepsake Mm -hmm. DNA, of course, did the review of some of the envelopes that I sent out a few weeks ago. And now they've got a few more envelopes that I've come up with. And my cousin Jim, he's my half-second cousin because his grandmother was a half-sister of my grandfather. He called me the other day and said, hey, would my grandmother's teeth help your project? And I'm going, what? And apparently it wasn't, yeah, it was her, it was two false teeth in a bridge. And I guess it was in her mouth when she was actually on her deathbed. Apparently, they removed it at that time because they were afraid that she could swallow it and choke. So he says, I've never known what to do with it. I've had it this whole time. And I said, well, you've got a purpose now. So he sent it on to me. I've sent it on to Keepsake DNA. And we will find out if something comes as a result of that. I just must say that Keepsake DNA is now bridging your genealogy for you. <laughs> yes, that's very good, Sorry. Dave. Get on with it. Get on with it. Oh. Uh, well, that's all the bad humor and news I have for this week. All right, David. Thank you so much. See you at the back end of the show. Back for Ask Us Anything. And, you know, most of us, when we get into research, we kind of sum it all up in a book. Maybe something we share with the immediate family or some extended family or some close friends. But really, that's about it. But my next guest actually discovered something that he wanted to take to a larger audience, like the United States Congress, and you're going to want to hear why. He's Daniel Swam from Minnesota. Thank you for having me on. Just delighted to have you here, and uh, let's just start with what your project was, and then we'll get to where this went, because it's really quite remarkable. You, like many of us, wanted to know a little more about your family. 
Yes, I was researching family history a number of years ago. I came across a piece of information that, that I had no idea existed. My grandmother, Elsie knutson Morin, was born near Lake Superior in Minnesota's Arrowhead country in 1891. And she lived all of her life in Minnesota. She married my grandfather, who was a Swedish immigrant, a carpenter who came and settled in northeastern Minnesota. And a lot of Scandinavians settled in Minnesota. Lots, yes, is very, very Scandinavian, uh, particularly on the North Shore. It's a mining and fishing and lumbering area, just like the old country. And they were married in 1914, probably unbeknownst to her, and certainly unbeknownst to me as I was doing research, I discovered that on her wedding day in 1914, she was stripped of her American citizenship. What? Yes. She was stripped of her American citizenship. Uh, uh, The Congress had passed in 1907 a law that was called the Expatriation Act. And it was a law that basically stated that if any American-born woman married somebody who was an immigrant who was not naturalized, and my grandfather was not naturalized at the time they were married, then that American woman, her citizenship was forfeit. And the the law was retroactive, so when it was passed in 1907, it meant that people that had been born and were married in the 1800s retroactively lost their citizenship. I did not know that. I've never heard that. Amazing. it's a, you know, it's kind of one of those unknown pieces of American history that probably uh, not Congress's finest hour. Right. <laughs> uh, the law was enforced by three presidential administrations, the, the Roosevelt administration, the Taft administration, and the Wilson administration. And the law was challenged in 1915 at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court up held the validity of the law. Wow. So it was a very bizarre law. And as women's suffrage gained steam... Right, uh, up to 1920. Yes. Parts of the law were repealed in 1922 with a piece of legislation called the Cable Act. And then in 1940, the law was completely repealed. Now, now help me to understand something, though, here, Daniel. And and that is, uh, if... This went retroactively back into the 1800s. What happened when the man would naturalize? Would the woman automatically become an American citizen she, again? Right. Then she was renaturalized. She became a naturalized American citizen. Uh, <laughs> kind of weird because she was already born here. I mean, so. Um, and the, the issue that I discovered, uh, how I actually discovered it was that there was a form that people had to fill out back uh, in those days. It was called the uh, Alien Registration and Property Form. And what they did is uh, the government had this form and people had to fill it out and turn it in. 
And the rationale behind that was that if a Mrs. Rockefeller or a Mrs. Carnegie or, or you know, somebody from the Gilded Age married the Duke of Bulgaria or the Baron of who knows where in Europe, their money and property would not have been allowed to be transferred. Now, you have to remember that... Wow. In the 19-teens, that was during the time of World War One was going on, and then the United States entered in 1917, and that was when my grandma's document was dated. I had no clue, because this was never talked about by my parents and in my family, because Grandma Elsie died in 1926. Uh, she died in childbirth. Both she and the baby died. Quite young. Yes, yes, she was probably about 35. And then my grandfather did not get his naturalization until 1928. As I was researching this and finding all this stuff out, I just kept I just kept digging and poking and researching, and, and what I found was that this had not just affected my grandmother, but it had literally affected thousands and thousands of people all over the United States. And, and so your grandmother, because her husband didn't naturalize till after her passing, actually died as a, well, I wouldn't say a foreign citizen, just as a citizen of no country at all, right? She was, she was, exactly. She died expatriated and not a citizen of any country, even though she lived her entire life in the arrowhead of Minnesota. He never, never left the country, to the best of my knowledge. They were not a wealthy. They were, you know, my grandfather was a carpenter. She was a housewife. They had three previous children, my mother and then my two uncles, and they have all since passed away. But... Yeah, it was just one of those historical oddities, and the more that I researched it and the more I found out about it, the more irritated I got. Yeah, yeah, I would too, yeah. Now, this thing wasn't repealed before she passed either, so... No, this And this applied to many people, and many people listening no doubt have ancestors in a similar situation. Absolutely. So what I did, I did a number of things. I wrote an editorial for the local paper here in the Twin Cities for the Minneapolis Star Tribune about my, my grandmother's story. It was titled, The Citizens That a Nation and Time Forgot, and it's still online and people can still Google it and find it. I then started a Facebook page called Justice for Elsie, which I told the story. And then I also met with representatives of Senator Al Franken and told them the story. And much to my surprise, they were very interested. They, nobody had heard of this. They were very interested in it. And so we began a process to either restore citizenship to my grandmother and these women, or to at least have that wrong acknowledged in some way. And as the, as we went on, it became apparent that it was just going to be too much of a legislative nightmare to posthumously restore the citizenship, which kind of irritated me because sure. the law that stripped people of citizenship was retroactive so yes you know, oh no well we don't do that anymore oh I see. <laughs> <laughs> so, so 
them. I hit on the idea that the Senate passes resolutions. And I said, how about if we write a resolution that the Senate can then vote on that will apologize, that will acknowledge the wrong that was done to Grandma Elsie and to all of the other grandmas out there and see where that goes. The story was picked up by uh, a reporter from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and look at it go. And look at it go, exactly. The Washington Post had a story about it. I mean, and so I started hearing from people all over the country, and we were able to find co-sponsors for Senator Franken's resolution. And so the first person to sign on was Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Senator Franken's a Democrat, Senator Johnson is a Republican, and so right there, you know, we had some bipartisan consensus. Yep. Holy cow, Grandma Elsie could bring the whole country together Grandma, here. Boy, I tell you, you know, Grandma <laughs> Elsie was rocking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the resolution was finally passed this past month unanimously. Wonderful. In the, in the Senate. Unbelievable. And I have to say that this had nothing to do with me because I'm not connected enough or smart enough or, or, or anything to do any of this. I, I, this was something where I was being guided by uh, some kind of higher power, wherever, wherever that Absolutely. higher power resides, because they were filling me with the right words to say to the right people at the right time, because I don't have the smarts to do that on my own. Well, maybe Grandma Elsie doesn't have her citizenship back, but she certainly has been acknowledged in the right places. The United States Senate. And we made it happen. And Memorial Day at the Women's Suffrage Memorial Garden in St. Paul on the grounds of the Minnesota State Capitol, I met with Senator Franken, and there were members of the public at large and the media there, and Senator Franken spoke and talked about his efforts at the, in the Senate and presented me with a copy of the official resolution with the, the seal of the Senate on it to frame the whole nine yards, which was a very nice honor to receive. And I presented Senator Franken with the only photograph of Grandma Elsie signed from her entire family, which is now, you know, I'm her grandson, and then there's great-grandchildren, and then there's great-great-grandchildren. Well, you've absolutely written a new chapter in your family history, and it's a big one. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate that. Daniel Swam from Minnesota, thank you so much for your time, and congratulations. Thank you very much. Have a, have a wonderful day. And uh, Ancestry. Ancestry Health Corps essentially has just changed because they are changing the way they go about doing things to analyze your health. And uh, Dr. Sarah South is on the line from Ancestry right now. How are you, Sarah? Great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, and uh, I'm doing well. This is a rollout, right? I mean, you guys just changed the name from Ancestry Health Corps to Ancestry Health. And explain to us why the change. Yeah, it's absolutely a rollout because we are changing the underlying technology, the genomic technology that tells us, you know, what are the actual, the readout of your DNA. So as your readers probably know, your your DNA is made up of four different nucleotides. We call them A, T, C, and G. Um, there's different 
technologies to do that readout. And we've just switched from our traditional technology of microarray to next generation sequencing. And as you can kind of tell by its name, it's, you know, sort of a, a new innovation, the next generation innovation. Wow. And it's a more comprehensive way of looking at the DNA. It's highly accurate. It can do what we've traditionally done for origins, but it can give a deeper dive into the regions of the genome that are important for your health. So uh, help me understand and everybody understand, you test certain chromosomes for family history research. What in our DNA do you look at with this? We look at the same regions of the genome for your origins as we do with microarray. So with this technology, you can specify, okay, these are the regions of the genome that help me understand your origins and to identify your relatives. And then we can add on top of it, we also know over the last couple decades of medical research that these are the genes that are highly impactful for colon cancer risk, breast cancer risk, mm. heart disease, blood clot risk, risk of liver disease due to iron overload. So we have a list of conditions it's a growing list as uh, medical science evolves, but we know these are really important genes for those health questions that are top of mind. So I recall when my wife went through breast cancer, there was the BRCA gene test, and that's very expensive for a lot of people. Does this cover that? This does cover BRCA, and what's so great is that in the future, you won't say it was so expensive. You'll say this was affordable, it was accessible, I understood the results, I knew my next steps. That's the mission of Ancestry Health. So this means then anybody can just basically go on and check out their health ahead of time. They don't need a doctor to request this particular test. Well, the request comes through you as the customer, but there is a physician on the back end that is working with you. So it is still a physician ordered test, but it is customer initiated. So you are in the driver's seat as far as saying that I want to take this preventative actionable step to understand my risks but you're still doing it within the supportive healthcare ecosystem. So again, there is still a physician that is part of this, and there is access to genetic counselors, which are healthcare professionals that are specially trained in communicating genetic information to make sure that you understand what your results mean and what your next steps should be. So how has genealogy played a role in the evolution of NGS, this next-gen sequencing. You've obviously had to be able to identify that uh, certain markers suggest a certain risk. Has that come from the research and the genealogy and information we've provided over the years? It comes from multiple places. So you want to look at both the general population, and you mm -hmm. do that through things like Ancestry, where you just have a very large customer base. And I think of this as that in order to understand the kind of DNA variation that is responsible for health conditions, you also need to make sure that you understand DNA variation that is sort of just general, that is broad across populations so that you don't have as much of a bias. So for example, if you only look at people who are sick, then you'll always assume that any DNA variation you find there is associated with the illness. Wow. In order to know whether it's really associated with the illness, you also have to look at an even larger number of individuals who don't have the condition so that you can really be sure of the statistical association. And so I think that you could say it's in some ways related to the virality of genealogy that mm -hmm. we've come so far in the medical side of it. 
because we do need these engaged large populations in order to understand sort of the inherent genetic variability to then on top of that understand what portion of that genetic variability is associated with medical conditions. Wow. All right. My head's spinning with all this. This is exciting. I know a lot of people, though, they get concerned like, okay, our DNA is out there. What if there's a hack? Does the company share information with insurance companies or, or health companies? How does that work? Yeah, these are all great questions, and, and certainly they are top of mind. So the same privacy protections that we've had at Ancestry for the entire company, of course, apply to the health product as well. In fact, we even go another layer in that if you look at how the website is structured, there's the DNA side of it in which it's relatively easy to share, share information with relatives, find sure. your relatives. The health side of it requires you to go through like two-factor authentication. You know, so there's another level of security in the login. There's levels of security in the data. If you decide to share something, you're doing it much more directly. You're not necessarily doing it right through the website. If you want to share some health information, we allow a PDF to be created that you share, but we're being careful about the mechanisms whereby we might enable that sharing just to be sure that it is secure. The laboratories that are actually generating the data are clinical diagnostic laboratories that are following the same regulations around that data as they do for the clinical tests that they perform for hospitals across the nation. So that data is just as secure as if it was, and because it really is being done in that clinical realm. So insurance companies are never going to have an involvement with this information or have a right to it. No, you're absolutely right. We have not in the past and we will not in the future be sharing this information with insurance companies. So going back to next-gen sequencing, uh, Sarah, explain to me how much more accurate this is than your old system, because obviously you're, you're rebranding now. You're going to Ancestry Health from Ancestry Health Core. You're getting rid of your old method. How much more accurate is it and, and what can we get from this? That's a great question. So what it allows us to do is increase our likelihood of detecting a risk if the risk is present. So with microarray testing, if we detected a risk, we were accurate in detecting it, but if we failed to detect it, there was still a higher likelihood that it existed, but the technology couldn't detect it. I feel like I've used the word detect a lot there, <laughs> so let me try to say it another way. Okay. It's the idea of if you find something, it's real. But if you didn't find something, what's the chance that you just missed finding it because you were a little bit blinded sure. okay. in your evaluation? So there were more blind spots with microarray. Like false so negatives, a, maybe? Yeah. Think of it as, is the negative a true negative or a false negative? And there would be more false negatives with microarray just because of the blind spots. Mm -hmm. With next generation sequencing, we look at more of the DNA that is associated with those health risks. So if the risk is there, we're more likely to find it. So again, if you had a finding with microarray, that's great. It's actionable. Do something with it. If you didn't have a finding, there's a higher likelihood mm -hmm. that there is still risk. With next generation sequencing, we can't eliminate risk. We're not eliminating risk. And for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's more to your health than genetics. Sure. We're only really looking at the genetic portion of these health risks. There's lifestyle and all kinds of things. Yep. And there's also going to be things we don't yet understand, right? Like that's one of the fun things about science is that it's always evolving. So there will be future genetic risks that we know about that we don't know about today. 
Well, Ancestry just rolled it out. It's the new Ancestry Health. She is Dr. Sarah South. And uh, Sarah, thanks for coming on and explaining all this. This is really interesting times because it just appears that we can more and more get a handle on what our risks are in life. And, and never before has this been available. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to share it and my pleasure to be part of the team that built it. It is time once again for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth. David Allen Lambert is back from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, Dave, we have a great question here from Philip in Salisbury, Maryland. And he says, guys, the older brother of my ancestor died at Andersonville in the Civil War fighting for the Union. He was unmarried, so I assume I'm out of luck for looking for a pension. What other records might be out there? David, this is kind of right up your alley. Yeah, Philip, you're not out of luck, actually, because besides widow's pensions and those for invalids, you know, being injured yourself, obviously he wasn't married, so he wouldn't have got that. And he wasn't surviving the war, so he didn't get an invalid pension. But mothers or fathers could also apply for a pension. I don't hmm. know if you knew that, Fish. That's I didn't. A, a kind of underutilized search for a pension. The other thing that you can find pensions for are for the orphaned siblings. So if your ancestor brother served in the Civil War, died, and your own parents were dead, but your brother was your main guardian, you as a sibling, now orphaned, could apply for his pension as well. And same thing with the girl, uh, could apply for her brother's pension. But with the mother and father's pension, what they had to do, they had to apply for a pension, of course, say, this is my son, and you know, confirm that he actually had died, and the military could do that. But the parents fish had to send a letter, not a letter explaining this, but a letter sent by the son saying, enclosed is $2. I hope to send more money on my next paycheck. Please knit me a new pair of socks or, you know, just trivial little things. But these letters are never returned to the family. And as we know well enough, we don't always have everything our ancestors had. So these letters could have been lost. But now there are time capsule in Washington at the National Archive wow. in these pension files. The nice thing about these pensions, a lot of the lowest numbers of the pension numbers are being scanned and are being put on fold three. So take a peek on fold three, Philip. You might see that pension is there. That's incredible. I had no idea. Now, if you were going to go look for these, would you look under the name of the soldier or would you look under the name of the relatives? Just look under the name of the soldier, and if you know what regiment or vessel he was on, that would be useful. Incidentally, all of the Navy pensions from the Civil War, all of them are actually on full three. They were initially on microfiche for years, but you can look at those already online on full three if you're a subscriber. The Civil War ones for the Army are being put on by the 1861 and 62 and 63 applications. And then I think, you know, I don't know if they're even into 64 yet uh, and then 65, but then they'll just do them chronologically because all of them have certificate numbers and they're describing them in numerical order, how they're filed in Washington. So this is kind of like the uh, 1812 project that was going on a few years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only difference is that is free. These ones, of course, are behind the paywall of Fold 3, but it's still a lot cheaper to uh, get a subscription to Fold 3 than it is to pay $80 a pop 
for a pension that may or may not be the one you're looking for. So once these are all digitized and online, which will take years, this is millions of pages for all of these, uh, the amount of people in the war. And the thing that Civil War pensions for soldiers are still being given out till 1956. Right. And for widows, well, that's into the 21st century. And as we know, there was still a pension given out this year for one of the children that was a dependent of a Civil War soldier. So it may not be in our lifetime when a lot of these will be completely done, but hey, at least our kids and grandkids will be able to see them, right? Right, right. Boy, what a great question and fascinating stuff. David, we have a question here from Lisa in Elko, Nevada, and she says, guys, I have a DNA match that comes in as a first cousin to me, but I learned he is 27 years older than me. It doesn't seem likely that a cousin would be that different from me in age. What am I missing? Lisa. David, this is yeah. <laughs> this is something I've run into a couple of times before, and I bet you have as well. And I guess we'll start out by saying that when you're doing DNA matches and you're getting results on Ancestry.com or MyHeritage or 23andMe or Family Tree DNA, your shared centimorgans with somebody can actually represent several different relationships. And you can certainly see that illustrated with Blaine Bettinger's shared Centimorgan project. And it's really useful and helpful. And it'll show a range. And you'll see that a lot of people can actually have the, the same shared Centimorgans. For instance, an, an aunt or an uncle would share similar to a grandparent because they have 25% shared DNA with you. So if you have someone who's coming in as a first cousin, I ran into this as well, and it didn't make sense because the person was so much older. And so mm -hmm. <laughs> looked into it and discovered, oh, wait a minute. Looks like I'm looking at a half uncle. Yes, half aunts or half uncles oh. have similar DNA as a first cousin. And if there's an age difference of a generation like that, you might want to consider that possibility which could mean that grandpa or grandma had another child back there somewhere. That's exactly what I was just going to say. It's because you're probably finding that it may be that relationship, especially if the age doesn't work to be a child of any of your parents, siblings. So right? it would be kind of hard for that to be the case. Um, so that is the likelihood. Blaine's chart is great. I have it posted right up on my wall, and I look at it all the time, when, especially when that late night 2 a.m. DNA searching. And I'm like, what is this supposed to mean? Yeah, what is Thank this you, supposed Blaine. to mean, right? Well, it's true. And, and if you're not familiar with Blaine Bettinger's Shared Santa Morgan Project, you can find it on his website and just post it on your desktop. And you're right. Everybody who uses it uses it all the time. And it's fascinating. And the other thing is, is he just updated it. He has done, I think, three updates on it now since he first came out with it uh, in the middle of the last decade. So he says he's kind of closing in on the end of his updates on that. But they don't change too much anymore. They're pretty much the same. But no. that's the case. And that, I think, is a really important shared match because it's such a close one. Your close matches, obviously, are your most important matches when you're trying to verify, validate a paper trail, or confirm parents and grandparents. But when you find a half-aunt yeah. or half-uncle, maybe there's an adoptee in your family. Maybe there's something that's not making a lot of sense. That kind of relationship can be huge as you try to figure out, you know, how things come together for your known relatives. 
Now, Lisa, what I would do now is if you have parents from that side of the family or an aunt or an uncle from that side of the family, get them tested because then it would show a half-sibling for this person, if I'm correct. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And, uh, and and maybe get some more cousins tested as well. So thank you very much. Another great question. We're getting good questions. If you want to ask us a question for Ask Us Anything, just email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next week. All right, my friend. Talk to you soon. All right. And Genies, thanks so much for joining us this week. Talk to you again real soon. And remember, as far as everyone knows... We're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.